Amazon Web Services first came out in 2006. It took several years before the software industry realized that cloud computing was a transformative piece of technology. Initially, the common perspective around cloud computing was that it was a useful tool for startups, but would not be a smart option for large, established businesses. Cloud computing was not considered economical nor secure. Today, that has changed. Every company that writes software is figuring out how to utilize the cloud. Software companies with on-prem servers are migrating old applications to the cloud, and most companies that have started in the last decade do not even have physical servers. Applications that are started on the cloud are referred to as cloud-native. The architecture of cloud-native applications is a newer topic of discussion, and some software patterns that became established in the pre-cloud era might make less sense today. Cornelia Davis is VP of Technology at Pivotal and the author of Cloud Native Patterns, a book about developing applications in the distributed virtual world of the cloud. Cornelia was previously on the show to discuss Cloud Foundry. In today's episode, our conversation centers on her book and her perspective on the emerging patterns of cloud native software. Cornelia Davis, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It is so great to be back. It's been quite some time. Sure has been. I think we last spoke at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. Is that right? Yeah, quite a number of years ago. And I've continued to be involved in the DevOps Enterprise Summit. I think we might have met the first year that I was involved, but I've been part of the programming committee for some time. And dare I say, so delighted to have established a really strong working relationship with Gene Kim, who runs the summit, and I would dare even call him a friend. And he wrote the foreword to my book. That's awesome. I mean, he's become kind of a, he's like a cult figure and like DevOps Enterprise Summit has become something of an enterprise in and of itself. It has, and you're very right. He is definitely really seen as, as a kind of hero in the space, and he is. He's just so tremendous. And the Enterprise Summit, I always tell people, whether it's my colleagues or my customers, that it is literally my favorite conference of the year, and we do it twice a year, once in North America, once in, in Europe. And it is just the community that he's built. And being part of the programming committee, I can see the care that he puts into curating a super great conference and it really has a good team around him to do it. It's it's quite impressive. Yeah, it, what they're doing is really important. And I become more intrigued by it every year. I mean, this is obviously uh, kind of off what we were originally talking about, but I, you know, could tie in. The strategy around quote-unquote digital transformation is really a, an evolving thing. And basically, the way that a gigantic ancestral organization, if it's 50 years old or 80 years old, it's not going anywhere, and they need to adopt software, well, new software comes out every year. And so it's this moving target. And it's really interesting seeing every year the talks that come out of that place. In some cases, there are these total themes that develop, like what are you doing? Okay, you finally started your digital transformation. Here's the things you have to do. And then here's the things that just started happening this year because like Slack started becoming a platform or something like that. Yep. And even one of the really interesting areas that Gene and I have been working on together 
is that we, about a year ago, started talking about functional programming. And he personally made the journey from being an imperative programmer, you know, programming in traditional languages like Java or something like that. And now his favorite language is Clojure. And we've been doing a lot of riffing on how that's impacting even the software that we build and the architectures and around event-driven systems. So I like to say, you know, if if automation is the way that we used to do the imperative way of doing even systems, uh, deployments of applications, deployments of systems, what is now our functional alternative to that? And it tends to be more event-driven. And that's where Kubernetes has become really interesting because they're playing at that system space as, as opposed to the application programming interface. So we've been doing some work around that, and that's been starting to show up increasingly in, in the program. All right. Well, we're here to talk about your book, which is about cloud-native applications. And let's start with some history. AWS first came out in 2006. It took some time for AWS to become really popular. And obviously, in the early days, it was much more slimmed down. It was just a server in the cloud, a small storage service in the cloud. It's really changed since then. When did you start to realize that the cloud was going to change software engineering? It definitely wasn't in 2006. And you just put your finger on why it wasn't in 2006. And that was because it was really just running the same fundamental components of compute servers up in somebody else's data center. Although I will say that even though that wasn't cloud native at that time, it was cloud, which I make the distinction that cloud is much more about where and cloud native is about how. In those early days of 2006, nobody saw that. It was really seen as much more of a, hey, I'm just going to run my stuff in somebody else's data center. But nothing really changed around that. When the cloud started to change software architectures was when we started to understand a little bit more about the fact that it wasn't just a how, but that some of the characteristics of those clouds, AWS and now some of the other cloud providers were changing. Characteristics like, you know what? They didn't promise you that that server would stay around forever. And the fact that you now had to worry about a server not staying around forever, whereas before the cloud, we really built our data centers to have stable infrastructure. And if the infrastructure went belly up, we would throw our hands up in the air and say, well, our software can't run because the infrastructure went belly up but that's no longer an excuse. The infrastructure is having all sorts of changes happening to it and our software still has to run. So 2006, were we there? Absolutely not. I would say that probably by, um, well, when I'm thinking back, we started to really get serious about that. And I think I saw the first couple of really interesting talks from AWS people, people like Werner Vogels and, and other folks I would say it was closer to 2010. Why did you decide to write a book about cloud-native applications? The reason I wrote a book is because I actually have been delivering the messages that ultimately came into the book in one-on-one settings with our customers. I work for Pivotal, and Pivotal, our enterprise customers, want to get better at building software. 
And to a large extent, the way that that's coming from the the top, from their boards, for example, is the boards are saying, hey, we want you to go to the cloud. And they're basing that on ample evidence that of these startups that have been successful in the cloud. And they're starting to see those startups eat away at their business. And so they're saying, hey, we need to be that good at software. And so that is what I do in my day job is I'm out there talking to customers about what does that mean? It's not just taking your same practices and your same software that's running on-prem and running it in somebody else's data centers. The characteristics of that infrastructure and the other data centers are different. Therefore, you have to write your apps in a different way. The subtitle of my book is building or designing change tolerant software. So making that the first class thing that you're thinking about, those are the lessons that I'm working day in and day out with these large enterprises that have been sometimes building, but definitely running software for decades. And I wanted to scale that. I wanted to be able to, I am a teacher at heart. And so I didn't want to just teach the few hundred customers that we have as Pivotal customers. I really wanted the opportunity to share what I had learned so far, and I emphasize so far, with a broader population. Now, I'll also tell you that I have been a longtime teacher when I was in graduate school was when I learned that when you teach something, you learn it at a level that you just won't until you teach it. So it's not all altruistic. It's also that I have learned a tremendous amount. I've become much, much deeper in the process of teaching these patterns to my readers. As you said, that subtitle is Designing Change Tolerance Software. In what ways does our software sometimes fail to tolerate change? Ah, so there, there are quite a number of examples. The simplest one is this. I am willing to bet that some of your listeners are very familiar with the concept of a sticky session. So their applications have multiple instances deployed. They know that there's some, you know, good redundancy. Redundancy serves, serves a good purpose there. But they have written the applications so that they store the way that applications are written today is very request response. And there's you string together a bunch of requests to be able to achieve an outcome for your consumer. And in the past, we stored a lot of the state that took us from one request to the next so that we wouldn't have to retransmit everything that we had transmitted so far, that we would store that state in memory or we would store it on local disk. Well, change tolerance means that, so sticky sessions were a way that you could say, hey, a multitude, a sequence of events coming from one consumer will keep routing that to the same instance so that we can take advantage of the memory that's stored in that instance of the application. Well, in an environment where change happens all the time, and that change might come from, hey, I have a memory leak and my application crashes, but it needn't be something that is catastrophic. It needn't be an error. It could be that, hey, my infrastructure team or my platform team is in the process of patching the latest operating system from some vulnerability. And being able to do that without being in lockstep with the application team is one of the huge benefits. Well, if you're using sticky sessions, 
and they actually roll the instance and your user goes to a different instance and you loses all of the context of their shopping cart, that's a pretty bad customer experience and you're losing revenue. So it's that type of thing, getting rid of the use of sticky sessions, but instead handling state from request to request in a fundamentally different way. That's the simplest example I can come up with. And there's tons and tons more examples of that in the book. Earlier, we talked a bit about functional programming. And one significant development that happened just a few years into cloud was the infrastructure as code movement. And that has gradually evolved from things like Puppet and Chef, which I've never programmed in Puppet and Chef, but as I understand, they're mostly imperative languages. And that's evolved into Kubernetes, which is more of a stateless-like description language, which is more in the direction of, well, functional programming people tend to talk about statelessness a lot more than the imperative programming people. What's your retrospective on how we went from EC2 servers to infrastructure as code to immutable infrastructure? And, and what's the tie-in with these movements towards functional programming? Great question. So immutability is absolutely essential for change tolerance because immutability says that I when you have immutability, what you can effectively do is you can recreate from scratch. And that's what infrastructure as code is. So... For example, where we were just talking about this notion of sticky sessions, and I said, well, okay, you don't want to use sticky sessions, so let's assume we're not using sticky sessions. But I've got my application running, and by the way, it's increasingly running in containers. That's where Kubernetes comes in and other technologies. We can come back to that. But we've got our application running in those containers, and now I need to cycle the host that that container is running in because there's an, an operating system vulnerability that I need to patch as soon as possible because come tomorrow, the embargo is going to get li lifted on the vulnerability on the CVE and every hacker out there is going to know about it and they're going to start pointing their bots at everything out there. So we have to patch we, the operating system today. Well, in order to facilitate that, to allow that to happen in a few hours as opposed to a few months, which is literally how long it used to take to patch certain vulnerabilities. And things like Equifax show us that it sometimes wasn't even done in months. Sometimes it would take years to patch all of the operating systems and in the infrastructure. The way that we can achieve that is by automating the deployment of all of those things. And that's where infrastructure as code comes in. And immutability, is what says, once I've established whatever that entity is, whether it is code running on a virtual machine or code running in a container, I'm not gonna allow somebody else to come in and mutate it in a way that can't be reproduced. And that's going back to the question of functional programming. Um, it's extraordinarily interesting when you start to study this because if you were to look at an application where everything is happening with side effects. So by that, I mean, you declare a variable and then you run through some logic and you're changing the values of that variable as you run the program, as you run the imperative program. In the end, all you have left over is the state. 
But exactly how that state was achieved is completely lost. Now, if you take a, fu a functional programming approach, there is everything is immutable. So you can simply replay the, in fact, you can start with an expression of the problem that you're solving and the functional program will deterministically go through the same execution and yield the result at the end. So immutability, which functional programming, sometimes people have this misnomer that functional programming is, oh, as soon as I can pass functions, I have a functional programming language. It's actually far more important. The immutability portion of um, functional programming is far more important than passing around functions. What are the most common failure domains that a cloud native architecture needs to protect against? So I think that um, there are a number of them. So... I actually start the book. The first four words in the book are, it's not Amazon's fault. And I start the book with a story of Amazon, of an Amazon outage that happened in 2015. And there were quite a number of companies that, of course, are depending on Amazon to run their businesses. And the outage lasted, the outage for Amazon lasted somewhere between five and eight hours, depending on how you count, because lots of systems were affected. And so the outages for companies like IMDB and Nest lasted for at least that long, if not longer, by the time their systems came back up after Amazon systems were back up. Another company that was running on that same infrastructure was Netflix. And there was a great article, a blog post that they posted not long after the outage where they said, and I quote, yeah, we had a brief availability blip. And I just think that phrase is so fantastic because it's like, it's this like surprise, like everybody was blaming the infrastructure for their outage. And Netflix said, oh, we had a brief availability blip, no biggie. And of course, we know Netflix is kind of the poster child for cloud native and microservices. And it wasn't that eight hours or 10 hours is brief for them. Clearly, it's not. But what they had done was that they had protected themselves. They had understood very, very clearly some of the failure domains. And what happened in this instance is that Amazon had a full regional outage. So a whole bunch of the services in a particular region were affected. And what Netflix had done was they, first of all, recognized where that, out, that boundary, that failure domain was. And by the way, that failure domain is very clearly defined by Amazon, which is why I say it's not Amazon's fault. Amazon never promised you that a region would never go down. Sure, there are some SLAs where, you know, if it went down 30% of the time, you'd be crazy to use it because you need to have some level of stability. But they never promised it was zero downtime for a region. Therefore, they give you the access to multiple regions, but it's up to you to use them. So things like data centers, which are largely in Amazon parlance described as regions, the abstraction that they use as regions, Availability zones, which at least on-prem, now I've never worked in Amazon, so I don't know exactly what the physical analog is, but I'm betting it's very close to what we see on-prem in our customer infrastructures, which is that availability zones are usually racks. And so there's some abstractions that generally map to physical resources. 
Now, there are some others as well, which are network outages. So that's another failure domain that is very, very common. I like to use the analogy of when you're browsing the web and you click on a a link and your browser spins and never renders the page, that really very likely is just a network outage somewhere. And it might only be a few seconds, but it just lost a packet somewhere. And so it can't complete the request response protocol that it was in. So network boundaries are there. And then of course there's storage as well. So there are some failure domains, both you know, in all three, compute, storage, and network. Now, as we move to, to more container-based systems, then we have to understand where those failure domains are as well even in kind of the container space. And then when you do things like in Kubernetes, like you have um, namespaces. And then, of course, there's a relationship of the containers to the network and so on. Does a cloud-native architecture necessarily mean a, quote, microservices architecture? I mean, that's the simple response. It's really funny that I sometimes fall into the trap of trying to be a little, I'm a little OCD. So I try to be very, very crisp with terms. And so I probably would not have used the term microservice. But then again, you have to be pragmatic and you have to use the terms that are adopted in the industry. But the term microservice is a little bit of a misnomer. It's actually not the size, because we we talk about micro and we think, oh, it has to be this small thing. And it actually turns out that, in fact, we work a lot with customers where they have applications that predate the microservices era. So they might have a three-tier application that has the database tier, it has some services, and it has a, a web tier. And those could be pretty macro. They could be pretty substantially sized services. But if you follow some of the practices like statelessness or you're employing other practices like earlier, I I used the analogy of when you're browsing the web and you click on a link and the web page doesn't doesn't uh, uh, render. What do you do? Well, you you hit the refresh button. Well, the analog of that in writing software is you do retries. And so if you're employing, it's more around the patterns than the size of the services. And so you could have relatively substantially sized things. Now, there are some disadvantages. So if you have a very large Java application that takes five minutes for everything to load, for the class path to load, and you've got large class paths and things like that, then some of the benefits that you get from containers spinning up quickly, yeah, the container may spin up in you know, fractions of a second, but if it takes five minutes for the Java virtual machine and everything that you're loading into it to be ready to serve traffic, then you kind of start to lose some of the benefits that you could otherwise gain. So don't get me wrong. There are absolute benefits in going micro, but you can be, at the very least, cloud-friendly and maybe even cloud, you know, claim cloud-nativeness if you are not so micro. After several years down this microservices hype cycle, do you ever reflect, like, why is the monolith so bad? Is it possible that we're living through a microservices industrial complex, and maybe we should just be thinking about how to build our monoliths more intelligently? 
no, I think we're on the right path. And I think that we're going to stay on this path. And I'll say a little bit more about it. I'm just grinning from ear to ear. What a, what a fun question. What a, a really great question to ask. But I, I do believe that this idea of microservices and mo- monoliths are a thing of the past. And what it all comes down to is it comes down to agility and it comes down to tight coupling. When you are doing a monolith, and in fact, we see this, I think I always forget what the term is, but sometimes people use the term, uh, a term that essentially says, well, I've broken everything up into microservices, but then I deliver, the only way that I deliver things is when I actually pull all of the microservices together into a distribution bundle, which is monolithic. So inside a microservices, but distribution is monolithic. And that's really where you might, if you if you do that, you might still have some of the kind of runtime benefits of microservices and of cloud native in that if you've built the system so that each one of the components can kind of re, regenerate itself, you know, do self-healing and those types of things, you might gain that benefit. But one of the things that's very, very clear is that organizations have recognized the value of being able to release software very, very frequently. I just did a, a meetup last week with, with one of our, our customers and it's, it's Albertsons. And they talked um, in this public meetup, which is why I can quote it. They talked about, it used to take them three months to do a release of a piece of software that they're now releasing three times a day. And what that does is it allows you, for example, to experiment more. It allows you to fix bugs more effectively and all of those types of things. And there's organizations out there like Dora, Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble, who Dora in the meantime has been purchased by Google, that have done studies and have the metrics to show the increased business value from being able to release software frequently. And I remember a number of years ago at the DevOps Enterprise Summit when Nicole and Jez were up on stage talking about the latest state of the DevOps report that Jez said flat out architecture matters. And what he was talking about there is a loosely coupled architecture actually has direct impact on these metrics that show higher performing organizations versus lower performing organizations. There are some people I talk to who think that the only thing separating us from using monoliths in a more proliferate sense is is that the tooling around monoliths is not great. So if you look at you look at Facebook for example, Facebook has a very monolithic backend and it has a ton of tooling built to support it. And you can't find a lot of that tooling in the external world. So I don't know. I, f- I just find it an interesting thought exercise. I mean, I'm with you. I don't think this this microservices thing is, is slowing down. And I see plenty of reasons to go in that direction. But it is an interesting thought exercise. Yeah. And, and again, I think even just what I was talking about a moment ago, which is that you have all these business benefits that are tied to frequent releases and those types of things. Those monoliths, I mean, Amazon is well known for releasing software into their environment on average, every second of every day. They absolutely are not doing that on at, with the monoliths at the back end. 
Now, there's a couple of other interesting exemplars. So Netflix, it's not unusual to start with a monolith. In fact, it makes a lot of sense. Netflix was a monolith, took them seven years to re-architect the thing um, to get to microservices. Again, they're kind of the poster children. Most of the organizations I work with all have monoliths that are very, very difficult for them to not only to you know do new releases on, but also to retire because there's so much business value that comes from those monoliths. But that's, in fact, an important part of microservices, not microservices, but I would call them cloud native architectures, which is why my book is not titled microservices, by the way. That's why it's titled cloud native is because it's not about, it's what we talked about a moment ago. It's not about microservices. It's about cloud native. But there are some important patterns that allow you to have a certain level of agility while you are still depending on a slow to evolve monolithic backend. And there are things like event-driven architectures where you're starting to have your services, your microservices, have their own local storage and using techniques like events and eventing systems and event sourcing, and there's a difference between messaging and event sourcing, and using something like event sourcing to keep those micro, the data that those microservices are using up to date, where the system of record might be the, the backend store or the event source. That's one of the interesting things. But then those microservices can actually continue to evolve very rapidly. If we weren't just on audio, I'd be sitting here turning one hand very rapidly up in the air and the other one is going very slowly. It's a little like, you know, tap the top of your head and rub your tummy type of a thing. There's this impedance mismatch, but there are actual cloud native patterns that allow you to kind of mediate and moderate the impedance mismatch between this these layers that are very quick moving, you know, quick evolving and this backend that is a little bit slower. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole monolith versus services thing is it, it it's also these are two extremes where in reality you you know you have a gradient. You have if you have an older company, there's probably been mergers and acquisitions and there's different software stacks in different areas of the organization and some of them are quote monoliths and some of them are services and some of them are like some kind of service shim over the monolith you know you have like 18 services that talk to this monolith and nobody has any idea how the monolith actually works but luckily somebody had the wherewithal five years ago to architect a system of services that's that speaks some decipherable language to the indecipherable monolith and so it's not like you ever retire the thing you just kind of paper over it in a service-based fashion. Yeah, but you know, there's a big difference between putting a layer of services in front of a monolith and the way that we used to when we did SOA. Remember SOA? Web web splat or, you know, soap-based web services. And sure. All I mean, I, I definitely I definitely heard these terms. This was like when I was getting out of college. Ah. <laughs> and I <laughs> like you? heard these terms. Like I, when I was interning at eBay, I heard these terms. And then, you know, they kind of like gradually faded out of my nomenclature and so i never really had to like really learn the subtleties i I remember there was something to do with xml and i was like i 
I don't want anything to do with any of this. Yeah. Yeah. And the XML, actually, I, I was a huge XML fan because there was a language called XSLT that was functional in nature. And I'm a functional programmer at heart. And so I loved XML from that. I did the syntax. I, to me that I did, I don't care about syntax. It was all about the, the, the actual execution model and the interpreter, but the XML was in nuisance, but not the real point here, but we were doing these services layers on top of these monoliths. But here's the thing. We weren't what we weren't doing that we're doing now as we move into this cloud native world was we were creating these services, but we were essentially tying all of the services were tied back to this monolithic back end. And so if you think of that monolithic back end as a big old monolithic database, now if one of those services needs something different from the monolith, and let's say a different service is wants to just stay on, on the track that they're on now, but there's overlapping, there's conflicting needs from those two different services that were in front of this monolith, then you have to get all of the services in lockstep against the monolith because it's this shared system. What we sometimes think is as soon as we have services, they're loosely coupled and autonomous, but if they are too tightly coupled to some backend, be it a database or some monolithic system, then we only have the illusion of loose coupling because the coupling is actually at the back end tier. So some of these patterns around eventing and event-driven systems and every service having its own materialized view of some source of data, those are so essential to actually achieve the loose coupling that microservices promises. We've gotten really good at doing it at the compute layer but we haven't carried that all the way through into the layers of networking and storage. We're getting there now. And, and in my book, in the very first chapter, I build a mental model where I talk about cloud native is you have to think about cloud native compute, cloud native data, and cloud native interactions. Those are the three services, data, and interactions. And you have to think about patterns in all of those. Well, I was talking to a guy yesterday who uh, works on Istio stuff, and you know, Istio's well, and Envoy are interesting because they are the the cloud native manifestations of the load balancing and routing layer, and there's kind of the changing of the guard from the hardware-based load balancer days, the Nginx-based load balancer days, and it, it seems to be shifting towards a envoy up and down the the stack from your load balancers to your microservices instrumentation which seems like a more friendly way to be doing this routing and doing this uh instrumentation and so on this load balancing and you know that's that's just kind of one of these uh how how you just see these uh, the propagation, you know, th- through through the whole architecture, because like an architecture is a very a software architecture is, is or I mean an application architecture, because you can include hardware in some context. In that, is such a a wide scoping uh, blueprint of different you know things that are fitting together. So, as you said, we are seeing over time the cloud creep into and affect all the different areas of this application stack. 
Yeah, I think that's brilliant, Jeff. That's another example of what I was just talking about with a monolithic backend, be it a database or you know some monolithic system. You've just put your finger on another one, which is to say we used to have these centralized things like a centralized API gateway. So it, sure, the API gateway probably was deployed as multiple nodes, but from a logical perspective, it was a single thing or the load balancer from a logical perspective was a centralized thing. And what we're doing is we're breaking apart, not just the applications, not just the services, but all of the things that we use to wire together a topology of an application. And so I see the whole Envoy, you know, really the sidecars and then Istio is the control plane for that as a distributed API gateway, a distributed logging system, a distributed load balancing system. I think that's brilliant. And when I first started seeing some of that coming out in the industry, I was like, you know, I work on a, a platform where we actually have some of these things that are architected in a more centralized way. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like a distributed PaaS. So there's a certain element of that. And it's an important part of the evolution of platforms moving forward. Yeah, super cool stuff. And, you know, side note, you know, this doesn't need to be a conversational point because, you know, we were just talking before about how, as we're speaking today, the announcement of, of Pivotal's acquisition by VMware is formally announced. But, you know, that's not the only point of consolidation that's going on. You know, I think it, it was yesterday that the Splunk acquisition of SignalFX was announced. So you, and that's like, you know, to your point about the centralized logging stuff, I mean, you, we might see much like we saw with business intelligence uh, like a month ago, the total consolidation within like a week of the entire business in, or the vast majority of the business intelligence sector looks like we're about to see the same thing with logging, you know, perhaps monitoring, you know, I don't know who, who the candidates are for, for consolidation, but it's an interesting time. It's a time of uh, creative destruction, certainly, thanks to this cloud thing rolling through all the markets. So yeah, you don't need to comment on that because I know it's the business level sensitivity, but I think it's interesting uh, downstream propagation. I, I want to talk about kind of late stage cloud. So, you know, Obviously, we started with the EC2 and S3, and then we got some database services that were pretty, you know, like straightforward. But then we've gotten these more interesting things. We've gotten Redshift and Lambda. Eventually, we have SageMaker, BigQuery. These things that are born in the cloud, and there's not really analogs to to on-prem services. I mean, there are rough analogs, but these are really abstractions that are given to us by the cloud providers with the scalability and the constant updates and so on, all the things you get out of a platform as a service or infrastructure as a service. Well, I should say platform as a service, probably more accurately. It just like baked in. And so you get, an, you get these small abstractions with the platform baked into it, and it really changes what you can do. So... How have our software architectures changed as a result of these really beautiful, useful abstractions? Yeah, I mean, those, those abstractions certainly serve the goals of cloud-native software. I think without, you know, and it's always a chicken and egg thing. It's that some of those things were born out of a, a need that was arising from these new architectures. And then the new architectures were enabled through the availability of some of those, those new services. 
I also think it's super interesting that, you know, these things that are coming from these cloud native companies, not just cloud native software, but cloud native companies like AWS and Google. And interestingly enough, not a cloud native company, but it really kind of reinvented itself in a way that I think is extraordinary is Microsoft definitely got that is that they understood these patterns that people have to unwire these things that they have to unwire in their brains and unlearn right from the get-go. So that's, you know, some of these things that you talk about here, like BigQuery and Lambda and Redshift and even database as a service, although database as a service is an interesting one because in many cases, the implementation at the back end were traditional databases that they figured out how to project in a cloud native way. But that latter example that I just talked about is where a lot of enterprises are today. They're so used to having their operational practices and their software depend on these systems that are not cloud native. And so they have to work around that. And quite frankly, a lot of the difficulty in many cases is that there's just this mindset around, we talked about it earlier, stability. I was, that was the assumption is infrastructure has to be stable. And when I, a couple of weeks ago, was with, with a client and was chatting with a, a group of individuals and saying provocative things like, you know, you should intentionally cycle your containers every few days because if there's malware and then then you automatically get rid of the malware. They were like, what, we intentionally kill containers? What are you talking about? That's crazy. There's, you know, that whole interesting thing. So in terms of I think, again, it's that cycle. It's that chicken and egg. It's enabling other things. And that's the way I think technology is great. It feeds on itself and it builds on itself. Taking your experience in a predictive direction, I want to get your take on where we're going in terms of API economy. And I don't know if you have a take on this, but low-code tools. So... Let's imagine we're thinking about the DevOps Enterprise Summit in five or 10 years. I think they're going to be talking about things like like the low-code tool suite, like the, the air tables of the world. And some of these low-code tools are sponsors of the show, so I don't want to seem like I'm like doing on-air sponsorships. But like Webflow, for example, that's not a sponsor of the show. And, and then the API economy, obviously that's expanding. You've got Twilio's and Stripes and these kinds of things. And I think these will only become more proliferate. And there will have to be some kind of standardization around how the large enterprises are, are adopting these things. How does the expansion of of the newer suite of software, like API economy stuff and low-code tools, how does that affect your, your thinking around software architecture? So the first thing, even before I get to software architecture, is that particularly when you mentioned low-code, but also related to the API economy, I have to tell you that it drives me absolutely crazy that being able to write software is still something that is only available to the chosen few. And I'm like, you know, waving my hands up in the air. It is still too darn hard to build solutions. And imagine what will happen when anybody who comes up with an idea of something that they want to be able to solve can actually implement a solution And I think that these things that you're talking about here are the early stages of doing that. 
Now, as somebody who is a, a programming languages person, I love languages, I still feel like, and I don't have the answer, I don't know what it is, but I feel like we need to have a fundamental shift in the way that we view programming. There's the idealist in me says, functional programming is way better because you can do things like you can declare your intent. And then the, the interpreter of that declaration is where we do the hard, heavy lifting. And I do believe that there's something to be said for that. I believe that one of the things that functional programming and declarative systems do, and Kubernetes is a great example where Kubernetes has built in that hard question of where do I place my workloads? That's something that we used to have to do and to a large extent are still doing. But now all I have to do is tell Kubernetes, I need five instances of this. And so it takes the burden, it takes that cognitive load off of the human and says, let's let systems do that. And so now that I'm riffing on this a little bit, I think that you've actually put your finger on a couple of those things that by having consumable resources that, by the way, make a lot of sense. I think in the past, as engineers, we have had consumable resources, but I would call them the engineer's interface. So it was we thought about the way that we would code this, or we looked at the way that we would code it, and we started exposing just the, the class member variables. And that makes coding against those things still very hard. When you think about things like Twilio, it's starting to actually project capabilities in kind of more of a business tone and in a business language. So what are the business values of that? And so if we can start to stitch those things together and make them consumable by a larger, you know, people who don't have a degree in computer science, who haven't gone through a boot camp, then I think we're headed in that direction. I will admit that I haven't looked at the low-code tools in some time. The early, at least quite a number of years ago when I looked at them, it was still the same fundamental programming model, but just with a little GUI put on it. And I think we need to change the programming model. And I, I don't know where we are with that. I haven't looked lately. Fair enough. So as we begin to wind down, I'd love to know what's the hardest part about writing a book? So I think that the hardest part about writing a book for me was that it had, despite the fact that I, I teach these patterns in my day job, the actual writing of the book, not my day job. And so I wrote this book on nights, weekends, and on vacations. And I published the book a few months ago. And this summer had the first vacation that I've had in three years where I wasn't writing a book. I wrote when I was in Thailand. I wrote when I was in Greece. I, I mean, no matter where I went, I was always writing a book. So that was definitely hard, was trying to write a book as a side job. So that was, that was hard. But I think that in terms of, aside from the time, the thing that was hardest for me was that, and really more of a transition that I went through, was when I first started writing the book, I honestly was trying too hard. I was trying too hard to quote unquote write a book as opposed to just express myself. And so the very first chapter I wrote was like 70 pages long and it was like 
uber formal and it just, and it was painful, quite frankly, I didn't enjoy the process at all. And I'm a, I'm a, a novice. I mean, I've written blog posts and those types of things, but I'm a novice book writer. This was my first book that I've ever written. And so I really didn't know, I hadn't found my groove. And once it took me about a year. And once I found that groove and said, first of all, relax, I'm going to let my own voice come out. And I, I reached a point where I, I told my development editor, Christina Taylor, who was just awesome. Look, I'm just going to start writing in my own voice because it's more fun that way. So, you know, that was a transition that I needed to go through was kind of learn to use my own voice instead of trying so hard to quote unquote, write a book. And then another element of trying too hard was that quite frankly, I just tried to cram everything in there. And so that first chapter that was 70 pages long, it was like, wait a minute, do I really need to do all of this here and now? Or is it going to be, you know, the the best models are the simplest models. And so just relaxing a little bit and saying, look, I don't have to like prove quantum mechanics or something here. I'm writing a book that I want to be practical and I want to be enjoyable to read. And so that was definitely a transition for me. And dare I say at the end, I was having a blast, but in the beginning, not so much fun. Cornelia Davis, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been great talking. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.